This is episode 636 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. On today's podcast, I visit with Lori Neverman of Common Sense Home. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is usually an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website. But from time to time, I interview members of the preparedness community who can bring a ton of value and information to your preparedness. Links for this podcast can be found in the show notes or on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey everyone, this episode is sponsored by the exclusive Prepper Website email group, which allows you to communicate with other preppers right from your email. You don't have to worry about your every link, click, or word being tracked by social media. This email group resides on the same servers as Prepper Website, so you can trust it. Other benefits include members-only videos and periodic webinars. So this is a great value for $20 a year. For more information, visit PrepperWebsite.net or click the link in the show notes. Hey guys, I got another great episode for you. I get to interview Lori Neverman of Common Sense Home. Hey, she is not a stranger to the podcast. I haven't interviewed her face-to-face before, but I have read plenty of her articles throughout the years, and she puts out some really great stuff. It's really a family affair over there at Common Sense Home with her husband and her kids. Uh, I follow her on Facebook, and I get to see all the, the things that she's posting about what she's doing on her homestead and what, uh, you know, just her opinions and her thoughts, what, what they are right now, you know, currently, with all the craziness in this world. And so there's a lot of great stuff here. You know, the reason I asked her on, though, was a specific article that she recently reposted about kitchen substitutions. And I thought that that, this was a great article, an updated article, especially in the time that we live in right now, because some people are finding things hard to find in their grocery stores when they go to to buy different things. And so if you had a great list of substitutes of a, what can I substitute for milk? And what can I substitute for baking powder? And what can I substitute for this, right? If you had that great information Man, that would be valuable not only now and this time, but forever. And so she has a PDF in this article, and I thought this was really great. I love it when bloggers do this, and and they just provide so much value to the readers out there. So it's this PDF that she created that you can download, so you don't have to go back to her website over and over again to check out these substitutes. Uh, You can just download them, print them out, and keep them in your kitchen. And so I thought that was a great deal. So I wanted to talk to her about cooking from scratch, you know, cooking at home. A lot of people are doing that. People are foregoing the, you know, the fast food, the restaurant, and and even processed foods right now because some of those things might be hard to find. So while we are locked down and we're cooking from home, maybe we can start some new habits of cooking from home regularly so that we can eat better and eat healthier. You know, one of the things that she talks about in this episode is a bread book that she has created, and it is a great, great bread book. She really looked at it from someone who has no experience at all. And one of the things she offered to the listeners and to you who are listening and all the readers of Prepper website is a 20% off coupon. So you can get that for the month of April. There is a link in the show notes where you can go straight to her bread page over on her website. And so you can go check that out. But if you, when you check out, if you enter the code daily bread, you will get 20% off. And so you can download a PDF version or an ebook version. You can also order a hardback. And so uh, I think that's a really great resource to have over on the Facebook group. There have been some that have ordered it and really, really like it. And they've really responded. And Lori is the type of person that will answer your questions. And she is responding to those people on the Facebook group. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of great uh, information here in this episode, a lot of great information that Lori puts out over on her website. So I'm very interested to jump right into this episode. You're going to really love it. Hey, remember all the links, the things that we're talking about are going to be found in the show notes, or you can come over to the prepper website podcast.com episode 636, and you can link to all those episodes there. All right. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this episode with Lori Neverman of Common Sense Home. Hey, Lori, welcome to the Prepper Website Podcast. Hey, Todd, great to be here. 
Hey, I've been linking to your articles over on Prepper website for many years. I have even read your articles on the podcast. Uh, so I'm very familiar with you, but in, in what, what you do, and even it's kind of like a family affair over there with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and especially how it relates to self-reliant living. Well, I guess I started out with the self-reliant gig, if you want to call it that, back growing up on my family's dairy farm. We lived in northwest Wisconsin. I'm the youngest uh, out of six, and we had a small dairy farm, about 26 head max, uh, always a big garden every single year. Because uh, dairy farming, even back then, did not pay the greatest, so and a lot of miles to feed. So we always had a huge garden, used to raise big flocks of ducks, geese, chickens, and process all those. Mom would raise some extra to sell, always butchered a cow, you know, as needed here and there type of thing, and filled a freezer. My brothers would hunt venison, squirrel. So it was always about providing for ourselves, because we just didn't have a lot of spare cash to, you know, go out to eat like going out to eat was well maybe maybe we went to mcdonald's if we were in town once a year or something like that it just wasn't our thing and that was normal and then when i went off to school um i got my degree in math and physics my undergraduate degree and then i did my graduate work in mechanical engineering with an emphasis in renewable energy so i learned about solar at that point and um a little bit with power plants so forth and things related to that and then worked for a solar contractor for several years till I came home to raise my boys and then about 16 years ago we moved out here to 35 acres in the country and since that point in time this started out uh, it was a 35 acre parcel that was separated off from the original 40 acres they took the old farmstead and put that on five acres and then we got the leftovers so we have 10 acres of abandoned pasture that we've been turning over to permaculture style food production and then 25 acres is rented out to a nearby organic farmer. So over the course of the last 16 years, we built our house which has um, passive and active solar. We have solar thermal and solar electric. We have um, a big outbuilding which is a coop slash garden shed with attached greenhouse we have a second dome greenhouse and a third tiny greenhouse attached to the house that's for seed starting um, we knew that we wanted to do a lot of our own home food production so we also built in a root cellar that's under the front porch we have a dedicated canning pantry we put in a pond um, I think this is three years now and put in a pond and that stock was some smaller pan fish that are now, hopefully survive the winter. They went in last year, so we're not sure. So it's been a work in progress and will continue to be a work in progress for as long as we're here. This year, we're hoping that we're going to put in a 100-foot earth-sheltered greenhouse, which would keep us in food production all year round. Uh, it's planning sort of a primitive geothermal system for heating and cooling to control the temperatures in the greenhouse and keep the airflow up. The boys, as they've grown up with this I've been writing for about 10 years and so they've this has been their normal for most of their lives well they're officially I guess you could say graduated from homeschooling but do we ever stop learning hopefully not and so they've been roped into the family business they help out a lot with the food production at home here they do my video video editing they do the the social media some of the social media scheduling and they're right hands-on in the middle of everything and we also have a lot of food forest type plantings. We have two different orchards. We have nut areas. We have fruiting shrubs. We have grapevines. We have, it's, it's ever evolving. And our goal is to eventually produce most of our own food. You know, there's some treats and things that we can't grow here in Wisconsin, unless we get that greenhouse working really well, like maybe coffee, chocolate, that kind of thing. But you know, what we can do for ourselves I want to do for ourselves. And, and that's what I love about what y'all are doing in the articles that you put on your website, because you are actively doing all of these things and sharing, not just from doing research and, and you know, what you, what you believe should be happening, but you're experiencing a lot of these things. How much would you say that, uh, what percentage would you at, at right now? And I know you don't have the, the, the year long greenhouse up yet, but have you ever looked at the percentage of 
the food that you're making right now that you that you are producing on your own? I haven't run any hard numbers. I know that we eat from what we've got already year round because we do as long as well as with eating fresh. We do freeze dry. We do have a two freezers, so we freeze a lot. We dehydrate some and we can quite a bit and we use a root cellar. So I guessed vegetables probably upwards, you know, 70% um, and fruit maybe 50% because the fruit trees are just starting to mature. You know, that's the thing with plantings. People, <laughs> I, 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 I um, love these guides that you, you know, get fresh fruit from your garden yard, you know, and it's so easy, so simple. Well, plantings take time to mature. And then once they do mature, then you might have, you know, blueberries, apples, whatever coming out, uh, overflowing your kitchen table. But it takes time to get there. And we're finally reaching the point where a lot of our plantings are starting to mature. And so that number should increase significantly. We typically raise a flock of meat birds every year, um, meat chickens. And we will buy half or quarter beef from a friend who does grass-fed beef locally. So that's the majority of our meat. So if we're not doing we also try to source local as much as we can because, you know, our neighbors, good people working hard trying to provide, and it's good to support them too. You don't have to do everything to be self-reliant. I mean, that's my personal feeling. If you can support, you know, you're, it's about building community, not just um, doing it all yourself. I'm really glad you said that uh, because a lot of people think I'm going to go to a homestead and I'm not going to need anybody. I'm just going to be able to work the land. I'm going to be able to do it myself. But I don't think we ever really were in a place uh, that that was the case. Even and and I have uh, I, I remember just talking about this on the podcast recently. Just remembering some of the stories that my fifth grade teacher talked about when uh, she was. You know, even, oh my gosh, you know, Laura Ingram's, you know, Little House on the Prairie stuff, when we were reading those things back in the day, they were, they were never self-sufficient in themselves. They were self-reliant. Um, there's that difference in that definition. They were, uh, they always needed to be able to buy something from someone, right? That was always the the need. And I'm really glad that you said that because I think sometimes in the preparedness community, there is this idea that man, we just go out to the homestead where, where, you know, we can live self-sufficiently, ready for the apocalypse. But you really need that community, like you were talking about, to be able to, you know, purchase from other people or barter from other people. And uh, I, I'm just really, really glad to hear you say that. Are there any, any real lessons learned from doing that that you can share with us? Um. Which part of, you mean building community yeah, just or bu just being more self-reliant? Yeah, just building community with, with the people around you, supporting them, and then I'm sure they support you. And, and then when times are tough, I'm, I'm sure y'all can lean on each other as well. Um, you know, yeah, we've been doing a little bit of that recently. Of course, Wisconsin is on lockdown here with uh, COVID-19 and so forth. And so we have some families and friends who are self-isolating. So I've been... Being as we are sturdy, we've been doing grocery runs for, um, for well, three different families. <laughs> and so, you know, even right now, stuff isn't uh, producing too much. We're just finally getting started. But I have the friend, one of the friends who I do grocery runs for, she provides us with eggs. And then she knows another gal who does homemade soap. So we've been getting our homemade soap through there. And then the biggest thing I would say is to talk to people, you know, the old fashioned talking to people, mm -hmm. not uh, just uh, online visiting with people. And then if you can make friends with people, if you're new in an area and you can make friends with someone who's been there a while that shares your values, typically they will be able to connect you with other people who also share your values. That's one of the things when we moved out here, we initially, we had our place, um, small place in the suburbs for about nine years. And then we moved out to here and, um, my husband is from Northeast Wisconsin, but he didn't know any in this anyone in this specific area. Our old home was about half and only a half an hour drive from here, but it's it's really different. I you would think you know we still stop at some of the same places in Green Bay because it's a half an hour drive from our new place too. It was about fifteen minutes from our old place, but um, 
it, it's different. The resources are different, even with just a small shift in where you're at. And some of our best resources have been getting to know the neighbors here. And then they say, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so. They have such-and-such, and they could help you out, like small engine repair. Or, oh, um, another friend has currants. They can't get to them. You want to come over and pick, and then you can have the fruit. Our older neighbors, they're getting up in years. They have a big pear tree. It's over 50 years old, big, beautiful tree. And they are in their 70s, so they don't do a whole lot of tree climbing anymore. But I have young strapping men who help out. And so we've gone up there and, um, you know, in return for part of the harvest, we help them get the, the, get the pears in. And then, you know, we do canning and preserving together or you end up house-sitting for someone or we end up swapping produce. So talk to people, ask, let people know that this is what you're interested in. And then... Strangely enough, yes, there are still quite a few of us out there who share these same interests in just taking care of our families and providing for ourselves. And yeah, it's a great way to make connections. It really is about just reaching out to other people and communicating, uh, you know, like you said, the old fashioned way. Um, so that's uh, really, really good and something that we all should aspire to, especially in these times when other people are in need and we can, we can help them out. Um, with with whatever we can. You know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about uh, for this episode, you recently republished an article on your site, and uh, the article was called Kitchen Substitutions That Save Time, Money, and Aggravation. And with the isolation that is going on right now, you know, different states, different counties are at different levels, but a lot of people are cooking from home. And I really thought that that was a great article the substitutions, like knowing what you can substitute for this. And, and uh, you know, like right now, uh, you said that you, with your neighbors, y'all will barter out or trade out eggs. Right now, one of the things that's hard to get to or get and find here in my area, in the suburbs of Houston, are eggs, right? We, mm-hmm. we go and we're, we're not able to find them uh, like we normally would, would find them. And so knowing what I can substitute if I'm making something at home, is very, very valuable. So in this article, you included some great information. Um, You even have this three-page PDF that can be printed out to make it really easy for people. So I'm going to link to that in the show description so anyone can go to it and uh, they can check out, um, not only that, check out your great website, you know, commonsensehome.com, but specifically this article and the PDF so that they can can get it. But uh, knowing that these substitutions are important, when someone is cooking from scratch, especially in our current situation, when going to the store and getting the groceries that we need can be a challenge. In your opinion, why did we as a nation move away from this? Stop cooking from scratch. Why is it such a a thing where you got to go to the internet and you got to find out what can I substitute for eggs or this or that? You know, what, what, what did you, you you grew up, like you said, in this, in this lifestyle, where did we go wrong? Where do we go sideways here in this country, in your opinion? Well, yeah, it's always it's an opinion show, right? <laughs> but I think uh, a lot of it just gets back to convenience. So many people right now, we're being forced to not be so busy, at least some of us. But convenience is a big thing. I mean, even though my mom had the huge gardens and we did so much from scratch, we still had those packets of instant pudding and other instant things. And she didn't always bake bread from scratch. I mean, when things got really hectic, she'd pick up a loaf at the discount store. I mean, there were six kids to feed, so it it went fast. And um, so it's just people, something has to give when you're on the go, on the go. You've got families if both parents are working outside the home and then then there's after school activities or other things going on, social activities, it's a heck of a lot easier to just get something to go or hit a restaurant or things like that and, or get prepackaged convenient food and Holy smokes, are we inundated with marketing with the, it's easy. It's so easy. Just get this prepackaged, et cetera. And you walk into your average grocery store and the stuff I don't typically go into the center of the store very much, but three quarters of the store or more in your average store will have 
convenience processed packaged foods. So you walk in and that's what you see right in front of you. Well, this is looks good. This is right here. This is in front of me. This is in my face practically 24-7. So why bother? Somebody else, that's somebody else's job to take care of that food. That's not my responsibility. My my responsibility is my job. My responsibility is my family. Somebody else can do that, except for now we're realizing that um, maybe that somebody else isn't always going to be there. It isn't always going to be available. So I'm hoping that's one thing that, one good thing that comes out of that, this situation that we're stuck in right now, that people realize hey, where is that food coming from that's stocking those shelves? And maybe I should take make time for that because we have a tendency to make time for what's really important for us. And, you know, if you let it, you can um, go, <laughs> you can easily burn up hours on social media or whatever um, that maybe would be better spent somewhere else. So it's, I think, hopefully it's a matter of reprioritization. You know, we go from easy to, well, maybe it's worth that extra time that we're going to spend on it. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. I, I think, um, if anything, this whole situation where we're in <clears throat> with the COVID-19, um, hopefully it's getting people to slow down just a little bit and to think about what's important and the priorities in life. And, uh, you know, cooking, there's there's a lot of things, you know, I recently I shared this on another podcast interview that I was having. One of the the things is I grew up always eating dinner with my family. That was a thing. We always ate dinner together. And, and you know, we, we were around the table, the television was off, and we just we sat and we ate. And I tried to institute that as as a parent, as a family growing up. But it didn't always work because, again, we are so busy. There are sporting events that we need to go to. There are activities at school. There are things that we get involved with and and all this kind of stuff or or kids are working. One of the things that has happened recently is we are spending a little bit more time around the table. We are sitting around and eating and, and talking and laughing and those types of things. And so I think that's really great. I hope that a lot of other people are able to experience that in this time and, and they're able to, I don't know, you know, really focus in and reprioritize, like you were saying, on what is important in this life because we can so easily get going uh, and, and not focus on what's important. So um, there's a lot of people that might say, Lori, I just don't have time. And again, going back to the time thing, I don't have time to cook from scratch. So for the naysayers out there, you know, what are some benefits? And, and actually, I'll, I'll start off. Um, what, one thing that, that we have noticed here in my home, but for the naysayers, what are some benefits from just cooking from, from home or cooking from scratch at home um, other, than, other than, you know, uh, this, this being around and, and family, having a little bit of family time around the table, breaking bread together? Um, I, I'll share this, that I know that we have lost a little bit of weight because you're not eating out. You're not eating, you're not on the run. Okay, I, I need to go to this meeting. Let me stop by this uh, fast food restaurant and, and grab this processed food and, and let me eat some French fries or whatever. You know, that has been one of the benefits, at least for us, that we have noticed. Uh, what are some other benefits that people that are on the edge there and like, I don't know, should I take the time to do this? What are some benefits that you have seen? Well, we normally t- cook from scratch, so I can't say that it's very different for us because we, with the work from home thing, my husband's the only one who's typically outside uh, the house on a like daily basis before work, and I've actually been packing his lunches for him, so <laughs> it hasn't been a huge change for us. But um, one thing that does make a difference for us, or one thing we're glad to avoid, I guess I should say, perhaps, is that we do deal with mild food allergies. So by cooking with home, where you are at home, where you control the ingredients, then you can avoid the any potentially problematic in, things that might bother with your eating. Uh, we have issues, well, tend to deal with stomach upset where there's hydrogenated oils, um, various processed things just don't sit very well. My son is mildly allergic to nuts. And I've been bringing some homemade baked goods to my in-laws. My mother-in-law deals with digestive issues, and she's, there's a number of things she says she can't eat. Uh, she's had to give up, and she says, but if, 
but if I make it and bring it over, it doesn't bother her. So yeah. if you're dealing with um, various things and stomach upset, IBS, um, acid reflux, you might find that eating at home and you know skipping that the, the mystery meat and other goodies, uh, you might find that your digestive issues clear up. And it's easier to include things like probiotics in your home uh, arrangements, like or acidic foods, like your condiments, your relishes, your pickles. That acid actually can help improve digestion. So if you're sitting down, you're taking time to eat, and you're eating good food, it's going to sit easier on your belly. Also, if you're saying you don't have enough time, for us, our flex, our schedule is pretty flexible, and. I taught my kids to cook when they were young, so they can take over part of that food prep duty, which has been, again, a wonderful thing as they've gotten older, because you only you know, you split the time between different family members, so not every one person, or not just one person has to take on everything, or, you know, somebody cooks and somebody else cleans up. It shouldn't all fall on one person. Every house rule is, you want to eat, then you better be helping in the kitchen. And um, finally... If time is really, really tight, there are so many awesome resources online now. You can do batch cooking. You can do freezer meals. So you set aside one day a week or one day a month where you do it, just almost all the prep work. So then you can just dump something in a crock pot or you can just heat something up. Or, and so it makes it a lot more manageable for those families who are on really tight schedules or individuals for that matter. So there's, there's a lot of options and I really feel it's worth it. I, I know if we end up for some reason, we're stuck, like when we're traveling and eating out, it's like, just, I can tell the difference in my digestive habits and just, ugh. so it's very much worth it for us. And I, I hope others will find the same. I, I completely agree with you. You know, being, um, I still work for the school district, but when I worked on the campus and I dealt with parents and worked with uh, parents who had students who had had issues for whatever reason, a lot of the times it was back to the food. I mean, you could uh, help to mitigate some of the issues that students were experiencing just because of the food that they were eating. And I thought that that was, it's so important. I think that a lot of our health issues that we experience here in the United States and in, well, actually all over the world, because people listen to this podcast all over, it, it does stem from the junk food that we eat and, and that's there. And if we just out, if we ate uh, a lot more healthier, that that would be something that would be so beneficial to us for our bodies and to boost our immune system and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I really like what you said there. If people are experiencing issues in their body and they're, they're having the, these things, you know, why not, look at what you're eating, do a food journal and, and find out, Hey, when I eat this, I experience this, you know, in my body and then start cutting that thing out and seeing if that works for you. Um, I, I just think that we have, uh, just because of the food that we eat, we, we experience a lot of health issues that we shouldn't be experiencing. Absolutely. I didn't know my mother-in-law. Um, it's strange, not strange because she, she's a retired nurse and, she never, well, the doctors were happy to prescribe lots of pills for the condition she deals with, but she never took a serious look at her diet. And now that she has, she's like, oh, that's that this, I, when I take this, it makes it worse. When I eat this, it makes it better. Like she found out that carrageenan is one of her trigger ingredients, which is a thickener in a lot of different foods. And some people it doesn't bother her. It does. So Start reading labels, pay attention, and cooking from scratch is one of those ways that you can control to avoid those, you know, whatever sets you off. And everybody's different. So that's a really good way to, you know, do what's right for you. That's good. That's good. Good point there. So for those who are listening to this, um, we have people that have been preparing, who have been walking the prepared life for a long time, listening to the Prepper website podcast. And we have a lot of new preppers as well, especially because of the things that have been going on with COVID-19 and uh, with all that stuff. So we have a, a, you know, a wide variety of listeners that are, that are listening to the podcast. For those who maybe don't cook from scratch, or not, not doing a lot of that at home, 
what are some easy ways for them to get started, some good starting points to, to, to start cooking from scratch? Well, what I tell people when they're new to gardening is start with what you like to eat. And although obviously if you uh, want to eat something like croissants or something like that, that requires a more, high, uh, more dedicated level of skill, that might, that might not be maybe a burst best first thing to cook but then again if you master that you can probably master a lot of other things so I try to keep it simple you know look at really basic things start with a trusted recipe or a trusted reference that you think you know Alton Brown's obviously a popular tv person but you can and he explains the science and the chemistry behind why all the cooking works if they're a noob and they're into that geeky part of things but there's so many different resources online, you know, uh, with video follow-up as well as just the recipe step-by-step. Step. So start with what you want to eat, and that is a big inspiration, at least for me. It's like, well, this is what I like to eat. And nine times out of ten, well, I sometimes even around here, ten out of ten, the homemade version of something I've had in a restaurant is at least as good as or better than what I had at the restaurant because you can choose the quality of the ingredients. If you're dealing with a, a nice lean grass fed beef as opposed to a greasy, you know, cheap beef burger, that kind of thing, uh, fresh homemade bread as opposed to, well, that has been sitting around with preservatives in a plastic baggie for a week. And so if you start, what, once you taste homegrown and homemade, um, and I know, the boys, when they were little, this was a great thing for people with kids. Um, they were so excited to feed other people what they had grown to. It was like, oh, try the beans, Grandma. They're from our garden. We grew those ourselves. And the flavor is there. And my in-laws, that they were not ever gardeners, but I've won them over a little bit too. And we bring them fresh produce. Like my father-in-law said, uh, I was slicing up cucumbers from our first garden when he was help, he was here helping my husband build the deck, and I was prepping the rest of supper, but I didn't have the rest of supper ready. So I peeled some cucumbers and sliced them with salt and just set them out for the guys to nibble on while they were working, and I finished the rest of cooking. And he said, "Oh, I don't like to eat those." Um, and my husband talked to me. He's like, "Try them, Dad. Try them." And he says, "Oh, those those don't taste like those can't be cucumbers because they don't taste they don't taste bad. Why are they good?" And so yeah, just. Start with what you like to eat. Just try a little bit of something and then build on there. Don't You don't have to do all of it at once, just one step at a time. Good, good advice there. So for those that are cooking from home, um, and this recently happened to me, right? Because I was, um, you know, you're not wanting to go out to the grocery store. You want to minimize as much contact as possible. I uh, was making some bread at home. And I didn't have one of the ingredients. I was able to go online and look for a substitution and was able to do it. And it came out really well. You know, it came out great. And so I know that there's probably a lot of other people out there that are like, okay, I want to, maybe I want to start, maybe after listening to this episode, I want to go do something, but I don't have everything that I need. Can we talk a little bit about some of the more common substitutes that people can use out there? Maybe they don't have eggs. Like, like I was saying Egg, eggs are hard to find right now, or maybe they don't have uh, milk, or maybe, you know, whatever it might be. Can we talk a little bit about some of the more common substi substitutions that, uh, that we can know and would be very helpful for us? Well, one thing I know uh, a super easy substitution is generally fats. Like, you might run out of butter. Well, you can use whatever kind of fat. You can use a liquid oil if you have that on hand, a substitute for butter. The, the flavor won't be exactly the same, but it will work. You can substitute fats one for one, whether it's bacon grease or butter or lard or um, olive oil, whatnot. That, those go one-to-one, -one, easy swap. If you're looking for, say, buttermilk and you don't have buttermilk, I know um, you need some type of soured milk product for a lot of recipes because they looked at for the leavening, like in a quick bread or something like that, or biscuits, you can use a home soured version of milk, which is if you take um, a cup of plain milk and mix in 
a teaspoon of lemon juice or vinegar, and that will curdle the milk, and that will give it the acidity that it needs to make your leavening in a recipe work. So if you, it's, it's not going to give you that exact buttermilk flavor, but it will certainly work and get the recipe done. Uh, you can generally substitute plant-based milks or any type of shelf-stable milk for your milk in a recipe. You can use water in a pinch. Um, your flavor is probably not going to be, and your consistency is going to change a little bit, but it will work. Same thing like for broth. You can use water or you can use your water if you have bouillon on hand to get that flavor back in there. Or sometimes you can use a vegetable juice, juice blend, depending if you're making a soup, like a tomato juice might add an extra layer of flavor to your soup base. And so it's really a matter of being cre creative and kind of thinking about what kind of texture and flavor you want in your end product. Same thing with flowers too. Like maybe I know I've heard that flowers are in short supply on a lot of the shelves. Like I can't get bread flour. Well, you can use all-purpose flour for bread. You can even use cake flour for bread, but it's going to be a little bit sticky and harder to work with. But you can, in a pinch, you can make it work. You can use whole wheat flour instead of just plain bread flour. Again, your texture is going to change a little bit, but you can get an edible product. So don't be afraid to use what you have and maybe adjust the volume a little bit, adjust the liquid a little bit, and generally you can make a recipe work. And... There's, like you said, there's three pages in the PDF to walk folks through a lot of different options. But main thing is, if you got food, just be creative and don't be afraid to try new things. Because, yeah, you know, if it screws up so much, you should eat the evidence. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, I was uh, remembering there was, when my son was in football, uh, one of the team moms made some brownies and she was a health food person. And she made, uh, and actually I had taught her daughter, so we knew each other. And she had told me you know, she had brownies. And I'm like, wait a minute, what kind of brownies do you have? And she goes, Todd, they, they're my brownies, right? <laughs> and I'm like, come on, they're not going to want to eat that junk. And uh, she goes, no, they're, they're really good. I'm like, no, there's no way that you made some healthy brownies and the kids are going to eat them up after the game, they're going to take one bite. They're going to throw them away. And she's like, no, I, I guarantee you they're going to eat them. And she had substituted, you know, she'd made, she, she made the brownies from scratch. She had used applesauce and, and all this kind of stuff. So um, after the game, you know, the boys were around and, and the, the coach was talking to them and they were eating their little snack and they were doing all that kind of stuff. And I was watching the kids and they devoured the brownies. And uh, I'm like, is it just because they're just hungry and, Maybe the brownies looked like real brownies and they, they wanted, you know, they were like, okay, we're going to eat this. And we're not really thinking, you know, we're just like mentally, it's just, it's a brownie. So afterwards, when we were driving home, I asked my son, I'm like, hey, so the brownies that you ate when you were, you know, after, after the game, how were they? And he was like, they were really, really good, you know? And I was, I was wanting him to say, no, nah, man, they tasted like junk, you know? It's like, no, <laughs> what kind of, what, you know, health food brownie junk did she put in there? But, uh, you know, that really opened my eyes. I mean, this was many, many, many years ago. This was before Prepper Website and, and all of that. But it really opened my eyes that there are ways that you can eat healthy, but without all, and, and, and still be good, right? Not, not be, you know, not, not sacrifice taste for, uh, you know, for trying to eat healthy. So, you know, when you, when you say that, that there's all those substitutes out there, yeah, try it. You, you never know. It might sound weird because it's not normal, but who knows what you're going to come away with, you know, and definitely if eating healthier is the outcome you know, what a blessing for that. Yeah, we actually have done some things like that. Like uh, I made a fancy Christmas cake. I did Yule logs for the first time last Christmas. But in our recipe, we did end up mixing. I made some that had applesauce in the cake. And they're, they were still high sugar, don't get me wrong. But, <laughs> but there's some a little bit of fruit in there. And I did a banana version. And so simple things. Um, applesauce is a good one because you can substitute half the applesauce for half the fat. So if you happen to have apple or mashed banana on hand and you're a little short on your oils, go ahead and make a swap for half of it. And that'll stretch your oil a little bit farther and still give you a moist end product. So 
That's good. Very good. So for, okay, I find it very hard. I grew up with a mom who cooked every evening. Like I said, we sat around the table. My wife cooks, uh, you know, we, we cook at home, but I know that there are people out there that go to the grocery store every single day to get something. Um, you know, they're not creating menus. They are, or they run by fast food or something like that every single day. And so I, there's people that are listening to this. I, I believe a lot of them do cook from home or they're wanting to be healthier. And they're, again, like I said earlier, there's some people that are brand new to all of it. So in, in, can you share with us, in your opinion, what are some of the, for those that are getting started, you know, this is like an entry into this. Like, I, I, I want to get started. I want to do this. What are f- some of the, I don't know, it's the five top cooking utensils that you don't want to do without, you know, what would they be if you, if you were starting someone off cooking from scratch? One of the first things I would say is knives, sharp knives. I hate it when I go into a kitchen and they've got these knives that they're so dull that it's hard to cut the butter with their so-called sharp knives. Um, We have at least big chopping knife and small paring knife because a nice small paring knife, you don't use that just for small cutting. You can use that for peeling. If you don't have a peeler works really well. I mean, that's my mom for years. Never, never had a peeler in the kitchen. We always just use the paring knife. So, and keep your knives maintained. If your knife isn't sharp, it's going to be that much more work to use it. And you got to have a cutting board and I prefer wood because wood is naturally antibacterial so sharp knives, regularly, regularly maintain, keep a sharp edge on them, uh, big one, small one. You, know, you can use your choice of large chopping knife if you like a cleaver, if you like one of those big butcher knives, if you like just a mid-sized chopping knife. But sharp knives, number one, absolutely. I like to use wooden spoons. I am a big fan of wooden spoons. They go on the stove. They go in the cookie dough. Uh, you know, we like wash them between the, the spaghetti sauce and the cookie dough. But... <laughs> Um, they're just, they're so inexpensive. You can pick up a pack of wood of wood spoons for a few dollars and they just do everything. And so we have quite a few of them, although I had to finally replace some, I think they were 20 years old and they finally busted. Um, but they last a long time again, antibacterial, really versatile. I do like, um, on cooking on the stovetop, frying, um, you know, flipping burgers, flipping eggs. I like a nice large metal spatula. I don't use nonstick skillets. So for your cast iron skillet or your stainless steel skillet, a nice metal spatula that you can get underneath there and get it slided in even, flip stuff. Um, I also like a silicone silicone spatula for um, your something that's heat proof. So you can use it on top of the stove if you're mixing sauces on the stove when you're cooking. And you can use it to clean out your bowls when you're mixing. So something that you can smooth and clear the bottom of your pan, your, your bowl, whatever. Those would probably be my top things. I have a large skillet that cooks just about everything, large stainless steel skillet or cast iron, your choice, and a large mixing bowl. I mean, with those items, I could do accomplish most anything, you know, from bread to meatloaf to uh, anything in between it just yeah that those are my go-to things i do have a a fine assortment of other tools but those are the ones that i use day in day out week after week you know i'm gonna second your use of the cast iron um one of the things is when you start using those nonstick uh pans right you start seeing the flakes eventually coming off it shows up in your food it's It's so gross it's nasty right and if you're not really paying attention to it you, you're, you don't realize you're eating that stuff that's going into your body. And with cast iron, it's not really that expensive. You can get some large, uh, you know, cast iron uh, skillets and pots and, or Dutch ovens and, and things that you can use on your stove. Uh, and you're not really spending a whole lot of money. And it has just really been, there's a little bit more care that goes into it, a little bit more maybe cleanup uh, at the end. But once you get into the groove of what you need to do, to, to maintain them, it really is so much better for you and uh, healthier for you. So I'm, I'm glad that you said that. Um, now, it, I also look at those pans as an investment. I mean, if you get a large 
a cast iron pan or stainless steel pan, that is going to last you for years. So it's not a, oh, two years and the, the, the coating is scraping off into my pancakes. So it, it's, it's you got to think about the long-term thing. And, you know, okay, maybe it's a little bit more upfront, but this is going to last me forever. I'm not going to have to be out shopping you know, in two years again. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. And we've, we've pretty much moved to uh, cast iron and it's just, you know, again, there's a little bit more of understanding how to, how to use it, how to clean it. But then after that, it's like, there's just a no brainer. And one of the things and we have a really big, uh, skillet, you know, because we have a, you know, I have a bunch of boys and, and we eat a lot. They <laughs> and, eat. <laughs> yeah, they eat. So you need to have that, uh, you know, you can't just get away with a small little one, but uh, it works out. It works out. And so hopefully people will take that into consideration when you're, uh, when they're, when they're cooking and if they're cooking from scratch. Um, what, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is your bread book. Um, you have a, a book that walks people through how to make bread from scratch. And, um, you, you know, you, you wrote this book in, uh, I just think right now, you know, is that perfect time where people are looking at, you know, they're, they're at home maybe they have a little bit of extra time at home to, to bake bread, but, um, you know, it's, it's, they have that time to invest in making good, healthy, bread as opposed to buying the bread on the on the store shelves that have all that has all that junk in there can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book and how it might be different than other other books out there on making bread the reason that i put this together was i kept running into the same questions with new bakers coming onto the website and I own a number of beautiful bread books that are, you know, gorgeous photos, these wonderful artisanal breads, and I don't use them all that much. They sit on the shelves because for day-to-day -day stuff, our family just likes some of the staples. We have a basic sandwich bread. We have a French bread. We have homemade tortillas. We have biscuits. We have pancakes. I mean, these are recipes that for us, we go back to again and again and again, and they're the most common items you see flying off the store shelves. And people think, well, I don't have time for, you know, it's just easy to grab this. If you get in a routine, you maybe bake once a week and you can have fresh bread throughout the rest of the week. Uh, you can put a double batch in, freeze half of it, and then you've got it. You've got the fresh bread in the freezer. So you can have one loaf right now, one loaf later. And that way you don't, you can save a lot of money if you stock up, you buy your ingredients in bulk, and then you just don't have to worry about, um, you know, when there's a mad rush on the store and everything is sold out. You've got it, you've got it covered, it's no big deal. And I spent quite a bit of time in the book there's a number of pages just troubleshooting all the common questions that I was running into with people asking on the website. I try to answer those in the book. So, okay, this happened. What did I do wrong? You know, my bread is flopping in the middle. My bread is raw, you know, baking unevenly. My yeast isn't bubbling or did my bread didn't rise. That's, I go through that step by step. Well, if this happened, this is probably what's going on. This is how you fix it. And I haven't run into that in any other books. I also got into storage. Okay, so you've made your fresh bread. What's the right, right way to store it? Okay, what's the right way to freeze it? You can do the fancy stuff if you want to have fresh warm rolls like for your Easter dinner or something, but you want to make things ahead of time. You can par-bake your rolls at home and then just take them out and finish baking so you have them right when you need them for a meal. So we've got instructions for all of that. And then if you have leftover bread, if you're making loaves of bread and it's a little bit too much, well, there's ways of reusing the older bread like bread pudding or um, what's the other thing in there? Like French bread, you know, French, French toast, I mean. And so I try to take it from beginning, helping with all the most common problems that people run into, to storage and using your bread and just making it really user-friendly on the types of recipes that I've seen, at least on my site, people using the most. Not your fancy pants bakers, but just average people what folks normally grab, but a healthier, simple version of it. You know, when I was listening to you talk about 
you know, acquiring all just the bulk ingredients. What does a, a regular loaf of bread, when you buy all the bulk ingredients, what does it wind up costing? Have you ever put, oh. put uh, you know, Gosh, that? I don't, I, I haven't, because <laughs> that's part of the thing with the bulk pricing, because, you know, if I buy a 50 pound bag of flour, I mean, that can last us an entire year, right. even for a family of four. So, you know, that lasts a really long time as opposed to if you're buying, you know, only five pounds at a time. Okay, then it's going to ring up a little bit more. But um, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I don't. And of course, prices vary a lot around the country too. But it's just, to me, it's more of a quality issue. I mean, I've got a loaf of homemade bread as maybe five ingredients in it, as opposed to the paragraph of ingredients on most store shelf bread. You know what's in it. It's simple like i mentioned my mother-in-law again she she's found she doesn't tolerate most bread from the store but she doesn't have any problems with ours so yeah it, it's more a quality issue for me but i think if you definitely i mean if you're buying the the super cheapest bread you may have a difficult time matching that price at home if especially if you're not buying your ingredients in bulk but if you buy your ingredients in bulk in shop sales or, you know, or shop sales, you should be able to come out pricing rise pretty similar or a little better depending on what type of bread you're getting. Okay. All right. That's a good point there. So walk us through very quickly what, what it would look like baking your own bread. What, what would that look like? Um, someone who's never done that before, they've always bought, you know, bread off the shelves and uh, they've just used that for sandwiches, whatever. Could you just walk us through what that might look like if we were making our own bread? For the beginning baker, I do advise starting with uh, an instant yeast. I use safe instant or bread machine yeast. That being because these the, these yeasts are nearly impossible to kill. <laughs> so, so your bread will rise. And you can just mix it right into your dry ingredients and it will dissolve and mix evenly in your bread. So you don't even need to use do the yeast proofing, which is one of the things that people have had problems with where you have to certain types of yeast. You want to activate it before you add it to your bread. You don't need to do that with instant yeast. So for our basic sandwich bread recipe, which is uh, included, there's a version on the site and there's also another version with troubleshooting tips that's free for subscribers and print-friendly version. And that's also included. It's a signature recipe in the bread book. And I've had so many people comment on that. It's like, it's so easy and we love it so much. We start out with um, warm water and then a cup of that into the mixing bowl and then add an egg and then enough warm water to make um, another, so it's one cup and then up to a third cup. So if you have a large egg, it might just be the egg. So then water and add salt, a little bit of sugar, your yeast, your flour, and um, stick of butter. And then when you get to adding your flour, I should say you mix everything but the flour first to make sure that's all well blended. And you can do that by hand or do that in a machine. I have a big Bosch kitchen machine, which the thing is a beast. <laughs> we have baked all the things to it. You can do up to nine loaves of bread in it at one time. It's, like, it's awesome. But after killing three bread machines, I uh, finally gave up on ever using bread machines again. And <laughs> it just got more power because we do use it. and. Um, so once everything else is well blended and that'll be kind of a sloshy sticky mix, then you start adding your flour in. And this is the part where some people, um, I guess probably the most likely part to make a mistake because you want to watch your bread dough as you're mixing your flour and you watch it and watch the feel and how it looks and you add in some of your flour and then it'll be sticky for a while. And then as it gets closer to the point where it's, right where it's got enough flour in it it'll pull away more easily from the size of the bowl and as you continue mixing it you know if you're using a machine you can do this all in your stand mixer or your kitchen mixer and if you're doing uh, hand mixing this is towards the end is where you want to dump it out on the counter and then knead by hand and you'll be able to tell because it'll start changing in consistency it's this funky thing with the gluten that it'll start to go from kind of sticky clumpy to smooth and elastic 
and it, it gets almost velvety texture to it. And this is, I use, I really like golden white flour. I buy that in bulk. It's a whole wheat flour, but it's extra dried down. So it's, it has a really excellent shelf life. So that's really great for preppers. And um, we'll get it in 50 pound bags and then seal that up. And so when you get to that end, your consistency, your bread changes. And I have I walked through more tips to this on the site, but you'll see that. And then you, you feel it. You get to when you, once you get used to baking, you'll get that feel for when your bread is just right. And a lot of folks, you might be tempted to add a little bit too much flour when you're new to this or not enough flour. If you don't add enough, then it's on the sticky side. If you add too much, then it gets you really hard and you're baking a brick. So that's, that's the tricky spot. But once you've got your bread smooth and elastic, then you, I like to put it for a first rise and let it rest for about 20 minutes, punch it down a little bit, and you'll see it'll start to rise. And then you punch it down and then let it rise until it's completely doubled in size. And then I punch it down again and shape it into loaves. Now these extra rise times help improve, they give the gluten time to work and develop, and they help develop that, that nice texture on your bread so you don't get clumpy icky bread and then it rises again in the pans or on your sheet pan or however you want to bake it and then bake and you can use the basic bread recipe it's a thing that at least for us we don't use fancy recipes different recipes for hot dog buns or hamburger buns or dinner rolls the one easy sandwich bread recipe it's like the utility knife of bread recipes it can be used for just about anything just depending on how you shape and bake it but if for buns it can go in at 375 for about 13 to 15 minutes for bread i bake at 350 for about 20 to 25 minutes and then you know you want to dump it on a wire rack to cool completely because if you let things cool in the pan they do tend to get soggy underneath because it'll get a little condensation under there and then that's that's it i mean Generally, I'm working on bread when I'm working on other cooking in the kitchen or there's not a whole lot of time. There's like 10 to 15 minutes that's more active. And then the rest is just the bread hanging out, doing its thing. So I think a lot of people get the, uh, the picture of flour all over the, the kitchen counter and, uh, you know, the roller and all that kind of stuff. And they just, they just think it's so much work compared to what you get. You know, why why do all that? Why bother, you know? right? Yeah. No, my kids my kids have been making bread since they were about ten years old. I mean, if a ten year old can make it, I think most adults can manage. Good, good. All right. Well, your 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 book, um, you have that for sale on your website. I'm gonna link to that. Uh right now for the month of April, there is a twenty percent off um twenty uh, percent off with uh, a coupon co code uh, daily bread. And so I'm going to link to that. Um, and so anyone who is interested in getting that and, and starting to cook from scratch and, you know, have you heard from people that have gluten problems and, and those types of things, um, that, you know, what can, what can they do as far as bread? I know that, um, there was, uh, I, I dealt with someone who, uh, had, had this issue. You can make flour from beans, I think, um, I, do you explore any of that in, in, on your website? Oh yeah. Cause I have, there's been time periods when I've eaten gluten-free. So there are a number of gluten-free recipes in the bread book too. And as well as some that like the quick breads that you can use a gluten-free flour bread, flour blend and they work just fine. So it's some people, mm, let's see, there's, there's, you know, gluten sensitivity and then there's actual you know, a gluten intolerance, complete intolerance. So it really depends where an individual is on the spectrum. I, I hang out with my foodie friends and we've, we've got everybody in there. And then I expect my mother-in-law that she's, she thought maybe it was the gluten, but it seems like maybe it's the other ingredients in the bread. So there's um, generally for quick breads, you can use a gluten-free flour blend and you will get good results. And the gluten-free flour blends, blends, a lot of times they have a rice base. Uh, I have used bean-based flours. They don't actually tend to agree with me very well because um, I've tried the gluten-free bean-based flour blends. They tend to give you a much heavier bread and they just really sat in my belly like a rock. So it depends on the individual. If one thing doesn't work for you, try something else. I also have on the website, 
some things with different sweets, for instance, that use um, a chestnut flour, which is a naturally, chestnuts are naturally sweet. So the chestnut flour is, gives you a sweet flavor with less added sugar to it. And so that's, they have an, a moist, cakey consistency to the baked goods that come out with that. And that's another thing I've tried. Um, overall, the yeast breads, if you're going to try a yeast bread that's gluten-free, you don't want to attempt to substitute a gluten-free flour blend for your standard wheat flour. Most of the time, that's not going to work very well because the gluten gives added elasticity to the bread that the gluten-free flour blends don't have. So if you want to try a gluten-free bread, make sure you use a recipe that is geared towards a gluten-free flour and then go from there. And as I said, there is some, there are specific dedicated gluten-free recipes in the book, and there are some different tips and other recipes on the site too. Good. All right. And I'm, I'm going to try to link to all those or to a few that people would find interesting and, and so that they can get some more understanding about that. Uh, let me ask you this. After the bread comes out, how do you store it? Because, you know, you get the bread from the store, comes in the little plastic, you know, wrap or whatever. How do you store it to make it not get hard at home? Uh, do you have any tricks on that? Well, one of the things you want to do is you want to make sure to let it cool completely before you put it into any type of storage container. Because as I mentioned with the cooling it outside of the pan, if you try to put that into a plastic baggie when it's still uh, warm and steamy, it's going to steam up the inside of that bag. You're going to end up with soggy, chewy bread crust, and it will spoil much faster, which is a bad thing. So you let it, we want to let it cool completely on a wire rack. And then you can, after that, you can just store it either, you know, in your plastic Ziploc or um, a bread container. My mom used to have an old fashioned metal bread box. There are linen sacks for bread storage. One thing that we've done um, when we're eating less bread is we'll divide it into multiple smaller loaves and then we'll keep one on the counter to eat fresh and then we'll freeze the rest of it. And you can either do that in a you know plastic bag or you can use freezer wrap or however you like. You want to try to get it as airtight as possible. But especially if you're in an area where you have humid conditions and things tend to spoil immediately, you know, go ahead and portion it out into smaller, something that you'll eat in, you know, three to four days. One thing with our basic bread recipe, that one does tend to be very forgiving. It maintains quality very well. Uh, French bread recipes, it's a little bit simpler, less ingredients. It doesn't have the egg for the condition, the dough conditioning. Those, by day two, they're, you're already starting to notice a change. They're starting to get dried out and a little more chewy and not necessarily a good way. But then it's perfect for French bread. So, you know, <laughs> that's a win because it, it gets tougher. So it actually holds up better for the, for the French toast, I should say, not French bread. French bread makes great French toast by day two or three because that consistency change in the bread makes it hold up better to the egg batter. So you want to try different bread recipes and see which one you like the consistency of because the different ingredients will determine how the bread, how shelf stable the bread is, you know, and how the consistency changes as it sits on your countertop. But we just keep it simple, you know, keep out enough for a few days and store the rest in the freezer. I don't recommend refrigerator storage because that actually causes chemical changes in the bread that do evil sad things to it that make it not tasty so <laughs> okay we'll, we'll definitely remember that no refrigeration um i try to end every podcast episode this way if it will at least interview if you were sitting across the table from someone drinking a, a beer maybe drinking coffee tea whatever and you had a little bit of time to say whatever was on your heart about um whatever it might be cooking from scratch Maybe it's self-reliant living. Um, you know, to end out this, this episode, I want you to imagine, you know, sitting across from one of the listeners and what would you say to them right now? First off, don't live in fear. So much I've heard now, oh my gosh, I can't turn on the radio, can't turn on the TV without fear being shoved down everyone's throat. Stop it. Don't go there. Don't fear trusts 
you know, if you believe in a higher power, that's a good place to start. But believe in yourself too. Don't live in fear. Second, start. Just start somewhere. Don't worry about getting everything right when you start. You will work out the details as you go. Start with something that matters to you, whether it's home cooking or baking your own bread, whether it's provide, you know, growing a garden, whether it's finding local people that you can buy food from so you don't have to be completely dependent on the grocery store, whether it's um, doing some modification to your home to make it easier to heat or cool. Just start somewhere. And then the details will work themselves out as you go along. I saw a picture recently, and there was a boy and a horse walking through woods and kind of silly cliche type things. And and the boy said, I can't see, I can't see which way to go. And the other said, Well, can you see your next step? Yes, I can see that. Well, start there. Don't worry about exactly where you're going to be, but just start with your first step and then build on it. Very well said. Lori, where can people connect with you uh, if they wanted to find out more about you and uh, what you're doing in the preparedness space? We, we do have a dedicated preparedness page on the site, commonsensehome.com slash preparedness, where we have an index of all of our articles on the site. We're also on Facebook um, and Instagram and most active with posting regular social media posting on Facebook. The best part, if they really want to get to know me, the stuff that doesn't get shared with anybody else is in the newsletter, which we send out once a week. Sometimes we send out some during the middle of the week if there's something time sensitive that comes up. And I do get a little bit more um, behind the scenes in the newsletter because I figure, well, if those folks, hopefully I haven't scared them off. They want to stick around and you know, do a little bit of fireside chat type of thing. So, and they can sign up that at commonsensehome.com slash subscribe. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're out there, you know, doing our thing. Like you said, this is how we live. This isn't just something that we research and write about. So I'm always here plunking along and yeah, trying to spread the good word, get the things done. Yeah, we really appreciate what you're doing out there in the preparedness community. Keep it up. And uh, like always, we will be reading your articles and linking to them on Prepper website. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Todd. Well, once again, Lori, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Hey, guys, I hope you really enjoyed this one. A lot of great stuff. You know, the people out there in the preparedness community that are really walking the walk and talking the talk, uh, I mean, they've got so much great stuff and information to share out there. And so I really love bringing people to you here on these interviews. And lately, it feels like I've been doing a lot of interviews, but there's just so much great information out there. And uh, I just I just want to make sure that everyone gets it, especially useful information that we can use here in this time, this crazy time that we are in. So hopefully you came away with some great information, some ideas that you can start using right now in your kitchen. All right, guys, that's it for episode 636. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Make sure you click on the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app or head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. And that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. Hey, and don't forget, if you're looking for more preparedness and self-reliant information, head on over to prepperwebsite.com, where we link to 8 to 12 articles every day of the very best self-reliant articles out there. We also have pages dedicated to alternative news, firearms, DIY, Bible prophecy, frugal living, and homesteading. And lastly, don't forget to join the email list if you haven't. When you do, I'm going to send you a free PDF on 25 handpicked preparedness articles that you should read. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace.